I don't know if you're like me or not, but I enjoy reading the Christmas slogans that you find on t-shirts and bumper stickers and Facebook posts and the like, especially around the Christmas season. There are a lot of catchy sayings out there. I saw this bumper sticker, silly liberals, it's Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays. I saw this poster in a store, Christmas, not Xmas. This ornament hanging on a tree, keep Christ in Christmas. This bumper sticker, Jesus is the reason for the season. Someone was wearing this t-shirt, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. (laughs) I saw this license plate frame, no Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. And perhaps my favorite, wise men still seek him. Wise men still seek him. That's the title that I've chosen for today's Christmas Sunday sermon. We're going to look at the story of the wise men here in Matthew chapter 2. Sorry men, but I must share one more catchy saying. This one I found on Facebook this past week. Three wise women would have asked directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, brought practical gifts, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and there would be peace on earth. (laughs) Sorry guys. Wise men still seek him, even though the story of the wise men here in Matthew 2 is well-worn. I think if we take a fresh look at it this morning, we may be surprised to learn some things that we never knew before. So let's begin by looking at the Scriptures. So you have your Bible open, follow along as I read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so after Jesus was born, during the time of King Herod, now I always hate to disappoint all of you nativity scene lovers, but you that know me know the fact is that the wise men did not come to the stable or the manger. As a matter of fact, as we have put the accounts together here in Matthew chapter 2 with the account of Jesus' birth in Luke 2, we discover that it was several months after Jesus' birth, in fact, most likely somewhere between 18 and 24 months later, that the wise men arrived in the city of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what that does to your nativity scene, but I know for mine, I have moved the wise men clear across the room. (laughs) Because you see, this is really not a Christmas story. (laughs) And yet we do tie it in with Jesus' birth, don't we? The Bible says magi from the east came. We more traditionally refer to them as wise men or kings. Actually, they were a rather unique group of men, probably from Persia, and probably much greater in number than just three. In fact, traditional accounts dating from the first century put their number at 12. Magi were men who dabbled in astronomy, astrology, philosophy, a little bit of medicine, natural science, and even 
magic. The good magi would often find themselves in the court of the king offering counsel to the ruler of the land. The not-so-good magi were really nothing more than fortune-tellers and sorcerers. Now, it seems that this was a group of magi that was of the good and noble variety since they were in search of this king of the Jews, as they called him. And our text tells us, notice, that they came to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, you understand, was the city of the kings. And if you're looking for a king, where would you look? The city of the kings. And so they arrived in Jerusalem, supposing that by this time, some 18 to 24 months after Jesus was born, that certainly someone in Jerusalem would know the whereabouts of this newborn king. And the wise men said, we saw his star when it rose. Now, let's stop there for just a minute. So much fascination has surrounded this star. It comes to the forefront every time that we celebrate Christmas. There are astronomers who try to explain this phenomena. There are astrologers who have a real heyday with this. There are scientists who have a variety of explanations. There are skeptics who try to explain it away. And there are religious scholars who have their own opinions about what this star might have been or might not have been. Now, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm not going to try to explain it because I don't have the slightest idea. However, I do know the Bible says there was a star, and I believe it, and I also know that this star was very unusual. If you put the whole story together, you realize that these wise men who saw in the east his star rise, they identified that this was a different heavenly phenomena. Very unusual. It was a new star. There was something unique about it. And when it first disappeared, it seems as though after that it disappeared from their sight. And so the wise men then made their way to Jerusalem because they figured that would be where a king would be. And when they got to Jerusalem and they inquired about the king's whereabouts, at first nobody had the slightest idea about the star or about this child. They then made their way from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as we'll read in just a moment. And it says the star reappeared to them for that five or six mile journey from Herod's palace to the house where Joseph and Mary and Jesus were living. Interesting. Because Jerusalem to Bethlehem is north and south. I don't know if you know much about astronomy, but stars move from east to west as the earth rotates. Besides that, I've really never known a star that guides people, especially one that shows the way to a specific house. Now, I can't explain it to you. I just know that it happened. And it was unusual. And God orchestrated this in His divine plan to lead the wise men to Jesus. Now, notice the wise men said, we have come to worship Him. That's amazing. Wise men, nobility, people who were total heathens, actually, pagans, they came to worship. The word here literally means to fall on your knees or to fall prostrate on your face before Him, to pay homage to Him. Which brings us to verses 3 through 6. Look at them with me. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophets have written. But you, Bethlehem, in land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now verse 3 says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. (laughs) And all Jerusalem... With him. Now, let me offer an opinion here. I believe the reason Herod was disturbed and the reason Jerusalem was disturbed are two very different reasons. (laughs) Herod was disturbed because this newborn king, Jesus, was a threat to his throne. Jerusalem was disturbed because could this be the prophesied Messiah? that we have waited for these hundreds of years? And that stirred up some conversation and murmuring among them. Well, Herod knew enough about Judaism that he put two and two together, and it says he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. By the way, these wise men never said anything about this being the Messiah. Did you notice that? But Herod knew enough that this could be the Christ, so he called together the Jewish religious leaders and inquired of them, where is the Messiah, the Christ, to be born? And they looked up Micah 5 and verse 2, and they pointed to the answer, Bethlehem. Which brings us to verses 7 and 8. Follow along. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. So why did Herod call the Magi secretly? I think I know why, because there wasn't a person in Jerusalem who knew wicked Herod that would have believed his story. Those who knew him knew there wasn't the slightest chance in the world that his motives were pure. He never did have any integrity from day one of his rule, and so he called these wise men who didn't know him so well and secretly found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. Why? Because he wanted to determine the exact timing of Jesus' birth. Why? Because later on here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, he used that information to slaughter all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas that were two years of age and under, hoping to snuff out the life of this king who was a threat to Herod's kingdom. And he tells the Magi, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. (laughs) Look at verses 9 and 10. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And so the star reappeared to them. The wise men were overjoyed. Why? Because this told them that their long journey was not in vain. It was soon to come to a A good ending here. They were going to find the one that they had been searching for these couple of years they had been traveling. Which brings us then to verse 11. Look at it. 
on coming to the house, notice house, not manger or stable, they saw the child, notice child, not baby, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I suggest that that's an amazing response for heathen noblemen who did not have the scriptures or the spiritual heritage that the Jews had. By the way, doesn't it bother you that the Jews who had the scriptures, who had the prophecies, the very ones that Herod had gone to and said, where is the Messiah to be born? Doesn't it bother you that they did not make that six-mile trip from Herod's palace to Bethlehem to investigate this report? That bugs me. Like, I can't tell you. But the wise men made the journey. And in spite of their pagan ways, they did the only appropriate thing they could do. They bowed down. They fell on their faces before Jesus. And they worshipped Him. And then it says, They opened their treasures and presented Him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now scholars have had a wonderful time with these three gifts over the years. Do they symbolize something? I don't know. But let me share with you what they may symbolize, and you can take it for what it's worth. Gold, of course, is the currency of the king. You understand that. It is the most precious of metals. It is what belongs to the king. So the gold speaks of the kingship of Jesus. Frankincense was used in worship, and so it speaks of the deity of Jesus, that he is God. And myrrh, interestingly enough, was used in the process of embalming. So prophetically speaking, this was a symbol that this baby was born to die. To be our Savior. Take that for what it's worth. Let's look at verse 12. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another and so God intervenes one more time to warn the wise men not to play into Herod's scheming hand. Well, that's a look at the Scripture. Now, what lessons can we learn from this familiar story? Let me suggest three very simple lessons that we can apply to our lives from the story of these wise men today. First of all, I see a lesson about inconvenience to self. A lesson about inconvenience to self. You can't read the story of the wise men without realizing that they made this trek from Persia to Jerusalem and ultimately to Bethlehem at a great inconvenience to themselves. There was a price they had to pay. There was a cost of time. You add it all up, it took them about four years to make this round trip. There was a cost in family. The custom was that they would not take along their wives and their children on such a trip. And so they had been separated from their families for this period of time. That's a pretty heavy cost. There's a cost in money. This would have been a very expensive trip. They financed it on their own. (laughs) And there was a cost in the treasures that they offered. The gold, the frankincense, the myrrh were very expensive items to offer to this child. All of which leads me to say this. 
Often when we seek to follow Jesus, there is a price to be paid. There is a cost to our discipleship. Jesus himself put it this way in Luke chapter 14. In fact, let's read this out loud together. Would you read it with me? Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Choosing to follow Jesus often comes at a great inconvenience to self. Frankly, it's kind of inconvenient for you to be here in church this morning instead of staying home and sleeping in or watching the football game or whatever it is you do on Sunday mornings. It's inconvenient to get up a little earlier each morning in order to spend some time with God in His Word and in prayer each day. It's inconvenient to be a faithful steward of our financial resources by giving the first and the best, the tithe, to God. It's inconvenient to carve out time in our busy schedules to gather with other Christ followers in a midweek small group Bible study. It's inconvenient to give of our time and our energy serving in a ministry in the local church where we worship. It's inconvenient to take a public stand for Jesus when others around you don't share the same morals and values that you do. Jesus summed it up this way, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Look at that a little bit carefully. Wide is the gate, broad is the road. That's the way of default, by the way. You understand that, right? You don't have to choose that way. You're already on that broad road. You're already going through that wide gate. But it takes a choice. It takes a decision. A commitment of your will. It is intentional if you get off of that broad way and you get onto the narrow road. And you go through the small gate. And Jesus said only a few find their way. Because it's difficult. It's not the easy way. It's not the way of default. It's swimming against the flow of everyone else. Yes, following Jesus is often inconvenient and difficult, but it's worth it, isn't it? Amen? Amen? Amen. Oh, that was pretty weak. Amen? Amen. All right, that was a little better. (laughs) Number two, I see here a lesson about interference from others. A lesson about interference from others. The wise men encountered a bit of interference as they sought to find the Messiah. First from Herod, who opposed Jesus, of course. And I think even, in a way, from the Jews who were, at the very best, indifferent to who Jesus is. 
Here's the lesson for us. Often in seeking to follow Jesus, we encounter interference from others. Interference from government. You realize, do you not, that the church is being persecuted more today than any other time in the entire history of the world? There are more men and women who are giving their lives because they profess faith in Christ today than any other time in history. Now, we don't experience that here yet. (laughs) But it's becoming more and more difficult, is it not? As laws and legislation seem to come against the church and against the Bible and against God, it's becoming a little bit tougher for us to live our lives, even in America today. We see interference from religion, certainly. False teachers and cults. And Just this last week I was reading about this. Somebody posted on Facebook that you've seen that bumper sticker that says, Coexist. Have you seen that one? Has the symbols of all the different religions of the world. Let's just coexist. Mm. And I think, no! It won't work! Truth, by definition, is exclusive. You realize that, right? If you believe the truth, everything else that is not truth is untruth. And so when we take a stand for the truth, don't give me the hogwash about, well, we just all need to get along with each other and coexist. Why can't we just get... We can't get along because truth is truth. And truth will exclude anything and anyone that does not believe it. And so therefore, by very nature, what we believe is contrary to every other religion in the world today. We must understand that. Interference from our job and our careers. Used to be you never worked on Sunday. Now it's hard to get off on Sunday. There's overtime and there's work you need to take home because you can't just leave it at the office. And you you end up... We have trouble with some of our own people who have to work on Sunday. Because that's the nature of our culture today. Then there's interference, of course, from family and friends. The ridicule, the misunderstanding that you receive. I know some people who aren't here this morning because their family scheduled Christmas this morning. Totally in disrespect, I believe, to the people who wanted to be in church and they feel like if I don't go to my family thing, I'm left out. So they give up church to go to their family thing. And I say that's wrong. But that's part of the interference we receive. Jesus warned us in John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Paul put it this way, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 12, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice he doesn't say might be persecuted. He says will be persecuted. And in fact, I would go as far as to say there is a measure of how dedicated and devoted you are to Christ by how much persecution you receive. Maybe the reason we don't get pushback is because we aren't pushing Maybe the reason we never get any flack and ridicule and persecution is because we've just kind of blended in with the world and we've compromised our stand with the truth because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Enough with that! We need to take a stand for what is true. 
And so pursuing Jesus sometimes, oftentimes in fact, results in interference from others. A third lesson. Number three, I see here a lesson about intimacy with God. A lesson about intimacy with God. If we don't learn anything else from the story of the wise men, please, 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 let us learn that the Magi were not content to know about Jesus from a distance. They just had to know Jesus up close and personal. At a great inconvenience to self and in the face of interference from others, the wise men were willing to do whatever it takes to find intimacy with God. And folks, that's the bottom line of Christmas, is it not? We must all individually and personally get to know Jesus. Christmas is all about God coming to earth in human flesh so that He could build a relationship with us. And Christmas means nothing at all if we follow from a distance. It's not enough to know about Jesus. We must know Jesus. Someday this same Jesus who was born as a baby, lived a perfect life, died and rose again, and who now reigns with God on high, someday this same Jesus will come again to take home all those who truly know Him and have trusted Him personally and intimately and individually as the forgiver and the leader of their lives. I saw this illustration this last week and wanted to share it with you. A young man went off to college. A young church man grew up in the church and went off to college. His first Sunday he was there, his roommate was a Christian, lived in town but was in the dorm and, and said to him, would you like to go to church with me this morning? And the young man said, sure, I'll go. So he goes to church and they worship the Lord and the pastor's at the back door greeting people as they exit, you know, and shaking hands. And this young man walks by and shakes the pastor's hand, introduces himself, and the pastor looks the young man square in the eye and says, Do you know Jesus? And the young man kind of sputtered and stuttered and turned bright red and coughed and turned and ran. (laughs) In fact, he ran all the way back to his dorm room, forgot that he'd ridden in the car with his friend, (laughs) all the way back to his dorm room, and he sits down, he actually lays down on his bed, and he's tossing and turning because he can't get this question out of his head, do you know Jesus? So he finally calls his mom and dad on the phone. Mom and dad, you'll never guess what happened this morning. I went to church, and of course they said, great. But it wasn't really great, Mom and Dad, because on the way out, the preacher looked at me and asked me the question, do you know Jesus? And his mom and dad said, well, didn't you tell him that you've been raised in the church all your life? And he said, no, because that's not what he asked me. He asked me, do you know Jesus? Well, didn't you tell him that your mom and dad are prominent leaders in your home church? No, because that's not what he asked me. He asked me, do you know Jesus? Well, didn't you tell him that you won the Scripture memory verse contest every year in Sunday school? And he said, no, that's not what he asked me. He asked me, do you know Jesus? Well, didn't, didn't you tell him you've gone to church every single Sunday? You haven't missed a Sunday from the time that you were a baby? No, because that's not what he asked me. He asked me, do you know Jesus? It's not about religion. It's about relationship. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way, Philippians 3 and verse 10. Let's, let's read this one out loud together. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience His resurrection power, be a partner in His suffering, and go all the way with Him. I love that. I love that. That's what it's all about right there. It's not about religion. It's not about all that inferior stuff. It's about relationship. It's to know Christ personally, to experience Him, His resurrection power, to be a partner with Him, and to go all the way with Him. And someday, each and every one of us is going to stand before God, and the only question that will matter is, do you know Jesus? Again, the wise men were not content to know about Jesus. They had to know Him personally. They had to experience Him. They had to partner with Him. They had to go all the way with Him. And my question to you this morning is, are you all in? Are you all in? Three lessons then from the story of the wise men. A lesson about inconvenience to self, about interference from others, and about intimacy with God. Wise men still seek Him. Let me wrap up today by reading you this poem. Who were the wise men in the long ago? Not Herod, fearful lest he lost his throne. Not the Pharisees, too proud to claim their own. Not money changers running to and fro. But men who traveled weary and alone with dauntless faith because before them shone the star that led them to the baby low. And who are the wise men now? When all is told, not men of science, not the great and strong, not those who wear a kingly crown, not those eager with hands to pile high the gold, not those amid the tumult and the throng, but those who follow the star of Bethlehem. Because you see, wise men still seek Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for allowing us these moments together in Your Word to be challenged by this familiar and yet maybe a little bit unfamiliar story. To learn from these wise men, these noble men of old who really didn't have the spiritual heritage that many of us have and yet they did what needed to be done, whatever the costs, whatever it takes, they did it to come to know Jesus personally, intimately. God, I would pray for each and every one of us here this morning. I pray if there's anyone listening to this message right now who doesn't know Jesus, they know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus, I pray that they would come to faith in You today. May there be nothing that would keep them away from that. For the greatest gift ever given at Christmas was the gift of Jesus and the gift of eternal life that comes in knowing Him. So we all confess Him, we all profess Him, we all declare Him to be the forgiver and the leader of our lives today. We pray it in His precious name. Amen.